0: Now how many of you are artist fans or love great paintings? But Rembrandt has a painting of the scene that we are going to be studying today in the book of Genesis. Rembrandt calls this Jacob blessing the children of Joseph. If you're a Rembrandt fan, you can sort of take in for a moment the beauty of his artwork. The color schemes, the way the canvas comes alive. You see Jacob also knows Israel old man sitting in his bed, placing his hands on his two grandchildren They look like they're maybe four, maybe maybe six, blessing them for future generations. You see Joseph looking over his shoulder, taking in the moment of what his father is doing for his grandkids for the first time. You see Joseph's wife over on our right, his left, looking on, just imagining what life will be like for the kids and what this moment will mean for them. As you take in the the beauty of Rembrandt's painting, you're struck that Jacob's sitting in his 16th century European bed. You're struck that Joseph is wearing a Russian husky hat for all the tundra icy moments that happen in Egypt. You're struck by his European wife that's white and Caucasian, even though she's supposed to be Egyptian, that he married while in Egypt. You're struck by his kids. It looks like Princess Leia is actually right there in the lap. And Princess Leia is actually being dedicated right here by Jacob. And that Jacob apparently is wearing a a wig that maybe someone in the U.S. Constitution writing might be wearing at the time. And As beautiful as this artwork is, as amazing as this artwork is, so much of it is absolutely historically wrong. And many of us have schemas in our head Of how things should work, how the life should work, how how we communicate, how we interact, how we speak, how we handle our anger, how we handle our temptation. And in our mind, we know exactly how it should be. That's what we've gotten used to. That's what we think is important. And yet so much of it is absolutely wrong. And God wants to put his finger on some areas of our life to make some changes. But we're so committed to what it is we're committed to that we're not open to God changing us. In fact, this photograph is a little closer, this painting. Here, we see a little more of the facts. The Bible records that Jacob is about 146 years old in this encounter. That his Egyptian grandsons are probably in their 20s, not four or five. That it actually looks like we might be in Egypt. It actually looks like he's surrounded by shepherds, which is the shepherd uh, Hebrews that were in the area, Joseph at this point is in his fifties. Jacob's in his hundred and forties, and his brothers are in their sixties so that's the actual scene that's pictured by the bible and imagine what these twenty year olds are going to experience, what's going to be modeled for them, and what's going on here in this scene and what we discover is that what whether you're twenty Whether you're 50, whether you're 60, or whether today you're here and you're 140, congratulations if you are. God wants to teach old dogs new tricks. And there's an old dog in all of us, whether you're 20, 30, 40, or 50. There's an old dog that says, I know the way things are supposed to be. And there's a lot of inaccuracies in there about God, about how you handle things, how you parent, how you handle your emotions. There's a lot of inaccuracies. As an old dog in all of us, that's not open to the new tricks God wants to present to us. I came across this little exercise several years ago that I use to sort of ask myself, how open am I to hearing from God, for him to put his finger in some area that I need to change? So you can do it with me, this little exercise. Scale of 1 to 10, how open are you to new information? So I'm going to give myself an 8. Okay. How, scale of 1 to 10, how open are you to new information? About anything. Okay, next one. How open are you to change scale 1 to 10? Meaning you get new information, now you're going to change the way you speak, the way you spend, the way you handle, the way you control. And your number probably went, oh, I'm very open to new information, but I don't want to change, right? So whatever it is, I want you to take your two numbers. My numbers are 8 and 7. I'm going to multiply them together. 56. I have a 56% chance of hearing from God. How'd you do? See, God is always about giving us new information and asking us to change based on his grace and many times i've got this old dog mentality in me that's not open to god saying god whatever you want to search me and know me and god you can change anything as long as it's these three things but if you really want god to begin to work in your heart and you just say god i'm open to whatever you want to say and i'm willing to change whatever you ask that you would grow me and that's what he's going to do here with jacob he's going to show him a, a route that he took him on that it's very unexpected. He's going to show him some reminders about what he's done in the past and ultimately a reversal of how he does things. And I hope by studying this and experiencing this that we're be challenging ourselves to keep growing, to stop stagnating, and to really refire ourselves what it means to love God rather than just sort of retire into sort of same old, same old. We'll begin with the route. If you and I were setting up how God would change the world, we probably wouldn't pick this route. The route of how Jacob has gotten to this particular moment, how Joseph has gotten to this particular moment. It's as it came to pass after these things. Remember, we learned last week that Joseph saved the world, but set the stage for tyranny. There's actually ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics that show that there was a time that Egyptians owned private property and then something changed. Because of some of the decisions that Joseph made. But after these things, after seven years of famine, and seven years of feast, or flip that, seven years of feast, seven years of famine, here's this moment now they've been living in Egypt, when that phone call comes. It's the phone call many of you have gotten in the last couple years. It's the phone call that many of you dread that you're going to get. It's the phone call that you need to go and visit grandma and grandpa, and mom and dad, maybe for the first time or the last time. It's the first time that you're going to have to think about things that you dreaded. It might be the last time you talk to them. And that's the phone call that Joseph gets. He was told, indeed, your father is sick. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. They're in their 20s. And Jacob was told, look, your son is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up in bed. I imagine that Jacob's sick, Israel's sick. But he thinks this is that moment. That I need to be strong. This is my last moment to speak words into my, into my grandsons. This is my moment that I want to get all my energy together and say the right words and the blessings that will impact my kids and my grandkids for generations. So He just, all his energy, all his tiredness, all his sickness, he sort of puts that to the side. I get to see my family again. And you think about the route God has taken to get Jacob to this moment. The grief, the lies, the manipulation of his own father during the blessing. The lies back and forth with Laban. All the heartache of thinking his son was dead. It's been quite a route God's had him on. But, but Joseph too. In fact, if you remember going back several chapters, there's something key, I think, in the two names of his sons. The names of his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, are very significant. Manasseh, back in Genesis 41, Joseph tells us why he named his sons what he named them. Manasseh means, God has made me forget my toil. And I love the honesty of this. The journey God has us on his life is not toilless. That we go through difficulty and challenge, and the route he has us on takes us through toil. Some of the greatest things we do that develop character in us in marriage, character in us with our kids, develop uh, dependency in us for God is through toil. And yet, God gives him something amazing in Manasseh, the ability to forget the pain of the toil and focus on the joy what God brought in the midst of it. His son Ephraim, the route he took him on... The word Ephraim means God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And I love the honesty. Boy, it's affliction. This is tough. This is difficult. But it's not an excuse to be passive. It's not an excuse to complain. I, God, want to be fruitful in the midst of the desert. I want to be fruitful in the midst of my affliction. And Joseph finds a way on the route God has for him to be fruitful in the land of his affliction. I think that's so important that we say, God, the route, my old dog mentality is no toil, no affliction. He says, I want you some new tricks. Stop thinking that there's no toil and no affliction. I want to use toil and use affliction on the route I have for you to develop these skills and character in you to depend on me. So you've got to get rid of the old schema and say, I'm open to change, God. Use toil and use affliction if it would make me more like you. My Grandma Hovind was one of the cheapest women I've ever met. Loved Grandma Hovind. My love for games came from Grandma. Uh, we played canasta. We played cribbage together. But Grandma was very cheap. I'd get a Christmas card from Grandma. and This is a true story. Every year, actually. Dear Ross, dear Ryan, dear Diane, dear Chad, really love you. Merry Christmas. You'd read it. She'd take it back, and she'd use it again next year. <laughs> Grandma was very, very efficient, and Grandma When you play games at Grandma's house, she said, do you want to play some Canasta? Sure, I'd love to play Canasta, Grandma. She said, great. I said, well, let me grab some chips and a drink. Are we going to eat or are we going to play games? Because you can't do both. I mean, I once had a special needs um, cousin of mine came in town, who I barely met, second cousin, twice removed. We sat down to play games, and Grandma was so angry because he couldn't play fast enough that she just had to walk away from the table. So, again, here's a woman who... I love dearly my love for games came from her but she had this real impatient streak Well, she, because my grandfather passed away and she just loved him she got put in a nursing home very young she was in her early 70s I believe and I remember coming to visit with her at the nursing home one day I said how's things going grandma she says I ah, just bored I said well I heard there's games here she's like oh let me tell you about the games she said uh, she said I, they pushed me in to the bingo hall I finally get there, and I'm waiting to play. It takes 20 minutes to get everybody wheeled into this place. (laughs) And then I got my card, and I'm ready to start pushing, and and the announcer comes up and says, All right, good to have everybody here. We're going to play some bingo. Come on, get on with it, get on with it. Uh, The first number is a B7. And I marked it, B7. B7... The first number, in case you can't hear me in the back, B7. B7. All right, last call. B7. My grandma's telling the story. Of course, we know it's B7. You've said it six times. I've already blooded. I'm ready to go. And finally, she's moving on to the second one. All right, our second number is, and somebody calls out from the back. I'm sorry, what was the first one? And she said, that was it. I couldn't take it anymore. I got in my wheelchair and I wheeled myself back and I'm not going back to that place. And oh, we laughed and laughed and laughed. It was so grandma. It also struck me that, man, I don't want to be the person that God just keeps trying to to teach this new tricks to. And, and in my 70s, I've, I've become the same old hardened version of my bad habits. I thought, man, God, I want to be open to new tricks. Teach me new lessons. And yet it also reminded me what I loved about my grandma, the joy she brought into my life. So as God has you on a route, what does he want to teach you? And how do you be open to that so you don't end up sort of a hardened version of your of your bad habits? Think of these two 20-year-olds that are being blessed by Jacob. They have seen this 140-year-old bless the Pharaoh of the world, they've seen their father forgive his cousins, I'm sorry, his brothers, their uncles. Think how powerful this would be in this moment, to see how God has used these difficult routes in life to bring about his purposes. But then we begin to see a whole series of reminders. Jacob turns to Joseph and says, God Almighty, the Hebrew word for this, the sada, is it means the Almighty One or the Abundant One. But remember, he's sick. He's, he's got all his, his energy, all his strength to say this. So in a very shaky, 146-year-old voice, you hear him say, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me. He said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply. I will make of you a multitude of, of people. And give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. And what he's saying is to his kids and grandkids dear. In order for you to know what God has in the future, you need to know you're part of a bigger story of the past. God appeared to me and to my father and to my grandfather and said he is going to use us to change the world. You are part of a grand story and I want you to know the story. I want you to know where you're part of the story, what God has done. God is the abundant one in the midst of toil and difficulty. Don't forget, be reminded that he is the abundant one. He is the providing one. Hebrews chapter 12 will will call this very moment as he blesses his sons and grandsons the pivotal moment of his faith and saying, I believe it. I believe it. I want you to as well. I want to remind you what God has done in the past. He continues. And now talking to Joseph, your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, forget my toil and fruitful my affliction, were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to Egypt. But they're mine. I want to take ownership of them as Reuben and Simeon. They're going to be just your grandsons. My grandsons are going to be just as much my sons as all my others, he says. In fact, he continues. They're going to be so rooted into God's plan in the past and what he's done that God is going to have a glorious future for them. And he blesses them by giving them a vision of what God might have for their future. Your offspring, whom you beget after them, shall be yours. And they will be called by the name of your brothers in their inheritance. But as for me, when I came to Padan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way. When there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. So remember, Moses is writing this book with a group of people coming out of Egypt. They're going to not trust God to go into the promised land, spend 40 years wandering in the book of Numbers. And then Joshua will ultimately lead them in and divide up the land. And if you notice how the land is divided up, there is no land for Joseph. There's land for Simeon, there's land for Judah, for Reuben, for Gad, there's land for Naphtali and Asher and Zebulah and Issachar and Dan and Benjamin, but no Joseph. Because instead of giving Joseph land, he gives both of Joseph's sons land. So he gets a double portion, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Manasseh and Ephraim get the land near what's called Jacob's well, Israel's well. Fast forward to the future, this will be the area where the Samaritans live. So the Samaritans, which are going to be actually discarded and thought of as less than because the Samaritans, they didn't see as pure Jews because they intermarried with people of of different races. And there's going to be a horrible racism that occurs in the future to the descendants of Joseph. All Joseph's done, everything that God has done, and yet God is. Jacob's going to tell him that God is going to use you in the midst of your affliction as well. He even hints at it here by mentioning Bethlehem. That Bethlehem, the Messiah, is going to come through our family, and what God is doing is bringing the Savior. You know, as Moses is going to teach the people how to depend on God, they will every day come out and they'll get bread, won't they? Manna. Every day they'll learn how to trust in God's manna, manna, pointing to the ultimate bread that will come in the future, the, the living bread of God, the Messiah, the bread that we all need and hunger for. And yet God, in his clear proclaiming of the Messiah, says, I want you to know where to find bread. Where do you find bread? In a bakery. So where would you find the Messiah bread? Well, God has the Messiah bread born in Beth, house of, Lahem, bread. God sends the bread of life to be born in in a bakery so that we would know who the Messiah is that God has a plan in the future that he is spelling out that how he's going to put his plans in motion and again what's so disappointing is that racism is going to creep into the to the church into God's community because there's going to be folks who say those samaritans aren't quite as Jewish as us so we're better than them because of our skin color because of our whatever the irony of this is so backwards, because even back in Joseph's day, Joseph intermarried with a beautiful Egyptian woman. Moses married Zipporah. So God has always been about all different cultures being part of his community. And yet I'm always shocked at how Christians have a tendency to make something, make them think they're better than others. Their skin color, their beliefs, their behaviors, their works. And Jesus will will, will go against all cultural norms. He will walk into this area of the descendants of Ephraim and Manasseh. He'll go to Jacob's well. He'll meet a Samaritan woman. He will love on her despite the fact she's a woman, despite the fact she's a Samaritan, despite the fact she's been married more than five times. And he will tell stories about the Samaritans. What does it mean to be a good Samaritan? To challenge the culture of the day. To be part of this redemptive purpose of God, of loving all in the community and drawing people to themselves. And all this will happen in the land of Ephraim and Manasseh but he continues in verse eight he keeps reminding them and Israel saw Joseph's sons and said who are these and Joseph said to his father well these are my sons whom God has given me in this place and he said please bring them to me and I will bless them and now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so he could not see and Joseph brought near them near him and he kissed and embraced them now, you can't read this without being reminded of another scene just like it, can't you? A father who's about to bless, a father who asks, if he, who's really in front of him, and someone whose eyes are growing dim. I mean, you've got to imagine that Jacob is sitting there and flashing back to his father, Isaac, whose eyes had grown dim and couldn't see, who is going to bless his firstborn and ask a similar question. Who is this? You say it's Esau, but it sounds like Jacob. And in this moment, as he's about to bless his grandsons, he must have remembered how he'd lied to his dad, what it was like to wrestle with aging, what it was like to not know for sure who your grandkids are, and yet wanting to pass on the blessing of a legacy. And yet the grace of God that God had worked through his life, despite all of the lies, all the deception, all the things he'd done, he was probably reminded in this moment of who God was and what God had done and how gracious God is. And if you've ever brought your kids or your grandkids to meet someone who's going through Alzheimer's or forgets who they are, this can be pretty startling to have someone you love and care about say, who are you? Really startling, really painful. In fact, I remember my, I have two great grandfathers who both were widowers. So when both my great grandmothers died, they moved in together. And they lived in an apartment in the hometown of my grandmother. So I would, uh, when I was 13, 14, we'd go down, walk down the street, we'd go to this little Ben Franklin, Killer Cane it was called, and get some candy. And on the way back, we'd stop by great grandpa's house. We'd knock on the door, and it was like the odd couple. Well, Grandpa Madden was like the magician. Everything was slob, mess all over the place. I mean, he'd come in, come on in. We'd do some magic tricks. It was great, Grandpa Madden. And you go over to Grandpa Eltervoke's side, everything was in order. Everything was just very perfectly, there was sort of a clear line, whose side you're on, but he'd make you some soup. And I loved great-grandpa Eltervoke. I still remember when my grandfather died, being in this apartment and hearing great-grandfather weeping, just sobbing. I'd never seen a man sob. I was in sixth grade at the time, and I remember just watching great-grandpa sob as he said, no father should ever see his son die. So I would stop by when we'd be in town once every six months, whatever, and I stopped by great-grandpa's house, and I came to the door and I said, hey, great-grandpa, do you want to, uh, how, how are you doing? He says, oh, well, doing fine. He goes, what, what do you want? Well, I thought we could come in and have some soup. I think I'm too busy. Busy? Why are you busy? You have nothing going on. Um, and so I talked for a little bit, but I just felt very, uh, you know, put off by him. And, well, well, we'll do this again later. And I shut the door like, man, great-grandpa didn't like me. <laughs> you know? I walked home and, and said, well, I don't know what happened with my great-grandpa. And I called up and he didn't recognize me. had seen me in a year. I was 13, changing so much. He was starting to lose some of those faculties. And I called up and found out, oh, I didn't realize it was Chad. I remember how startling that could be, and that was without even Alzheimer's or those other pieces in play. But imagine these these sons, the same thing. Who is this? And and they're longing for their great grandfather, their grandfather, to bless them, and yet there's this reality of mortality going on here. And then we see this incredible reversal that occurs. So reminder of God's grace, reminder of what He's done in the past, reminder of His plan for the future, and now this reversal of priorities. So Israel said to Joseph, "I never thought I'd see you again." I had not thought to see your face, but oh, in fact, not only have I seen you again, but God has shown me your offspring. I've gotten to hold and bless my grandchildren. Oh, God is good. So Joseph brought them from beside his knees and bowed them down face to earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head. And he stretched out his left hand and laid it on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly for Manasseh was the firstborn. So Joseph perfectly gets firstborn is near his right hand. Secondborn is near his left hand, just like it's supposed to happen. Bless the older, not the younger. And he thinks, well, maybe grandpa's losing it. Maybe grandpa misunderstood. But grandpa went. And you see in this motion right here. An old dog learning new tricks. Ever since the womb, he's tried to wrestle a blessing out of God. Get out of the womb first, so he could be the first to be blessed. Strive, strive, strive. Get, get, get. Demand, demand, demand. And God, it says, trust, trust, trust. Reverse your priorities. Trust me to exalt you. Stop exalting yourself. Trust me, the way of being teachable is the way, not the way of pride. Trust me, the way of a a soft word to to go against anger, not a harsh word. That's the reversal of priorities. Choose self-control over demanding. Choose love over hatred. Choose forgiveness over bitterness. Reverse the priorities. This is how God works. And his whole life has been about striving, striving, striving. But finally, in this final hour, he goes, God, I get it. You bless the younger, not the older. And I think this is a symbol of what God's doing in his heart by saying, I'm going to prioritize God's priorities, not my own. I'm going to embrace the reversal. Well, Joseph's not real happy about this. But he gives a speech I think is very powerful. He he blessed Joseph first. He said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked... The God who has, and I love this phrase, fed me all my life, long to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them. Let the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. Let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And here's this old 146-year-old shepherd saying, God has shepherded me, fed me all the days of my life. When we were over in uh, Israel a couple of years ago, we got to see shepherds leading their flocks we got to see them how they would feed them and how the sheep as they were following them would would listen for the voice of the shepherd and the 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 shepherd would feed them and as we were traveling up and we took some pictures of some shepherds usually teenage or pre-teenage girls and sometimes their five six-year-old brothers we got to see them lead their sheep over to some green pastures in fact we came across in the middle of the rocks a little bitty piece of green We said, what's that? And our leader said, oh, that's what's called a green pasture. (laughs) I was imagining golf courses. He says, no, the sheep listen to the voice of the shepherd, and he points out where there's a green pasture for them, and they feed upon it, and then they go back into listening mode, listen for the shepherd, where's the next piece? And they live in a place of dependence, knowing that their next bite comes from the shepherd. God wants to lead you that way, reverse you into saying, what does it look like? Not to say I've got it taken care of, but to say, God, I'm depending on you one step at a time. And all these years, Jacob says, God has led me despite my corruption, despite my manipulation, despite my lies, despite my favoritism, despite all the terrible things I've done. God has led me along the way. And now at the end of my life, I'm finally embracing his reversal of priorities. And Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim and it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's hand to Manasseh's head. And, and Joseph said to his father, not so, my father, for this is the one's the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. His father refused. So he back. No, no. I know, my son. I know he also shall become a great people. He also will be great. But truly, his younger brother shall be greater than he and descendants shall become a multitude of nations. Imagine you're one of the 20 year olds. Like, what's the appropriate reaction here? God's got a blessing for both of you, he says in a moment. In fact, the blessing upon both of you, all of Israel is going to say, oh, that we would have the presence of God in our life, like both Ephraim and Manasseh. But God has done something in me that I want to pass on to you. God uses the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. God uses the weak things of the world to put to shame the strong, as it says in Corinthians. God wants to teach us in our old dog hearts new tricks. Reverse. The way to find your life is to lose it. The way to to receive is to give. The way to find is to lose. Jesus uses these things all the time. This reversal of priorities that God has. See, all of Israel will say, May God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. And Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. And he says, I want you to bring me back to the land of my fathers, which is Shechem. And when I'm in Shechem, I want you to bury me there. Don't bury me here in Egypt. Moreover, I will have given to you one portion above your brothers, meaning because you're two kids, you're going to get a double portion in the land of my blessing, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. My bow. Now he does a really interesting Hebrew play on words here, because the word he uses for portion is He says, I'm giving you a double sekum when you take my body to Shechem. So it's sort of saying, hey, remember, I'm giving you a double sekum. Don't you forget to get me out of here to Shechem. So there's sort of this interesting plan on words. Two parts, I want to bless you with some sekum, but get my body to Shechem. That's his plan. That's what I want you to do, to honor me and to honor my final words. As I think about that motion, though a crossing of hands. Maybe you want to think about that too. Maybe that's what God would have for you today. What is the old dog in you that God wants to teach something new? Where you strive, God wants you to surrender. Where you're independent, God wants you to be interdependent. Where you've chosen bitterness, God says today's the day you reverse and choose forgiveness. Forgiveness. Where you've been living in fear so much of your life. Fear, fear, fear. What's going to happen? What might happen? Worries, if only, if only. And you go, I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to reverse and choose faith that God is in control. God wants to teach old dogs new tricks. So I want to encourage you to identify one route, one reminder, or one reversal that you want to take hold of today. Maybe the thing you want to walk away today is saying, God, my route, my old dog mentality is no toil, no affliction. But today I'm switching hands. God, make me fruitful in my toil and help me forget my affliction. Maybe today the reversal God would have for you is related to those reminders. You've sensed some bad things have happened, some circumstances haven't gone your way in the last few years, and you felt like, God's abandoned me. And God wants today for you to say, God, I'm going to trust that even though bad things happened, you've got a plan for my past, you've got promises that I'm grafted into, and I'm going to trust you for the future. Whether difficulties in the future or not, I have a Messiah born in Bethlehem that's going to work in my life. And I'm going to begin to trust you and come against the lies in my life. Or maybe today you want to take hold of one specific. And if you don't have a specific, you're not going to change anything. I promise you that. Specifically, God, I am wide open. Scale one to ten. I'm a ten. Share with me what you're like. Help me come against shame. Help me come against lies. Help me come against bondage in my life. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. Open my heart up, God. Reverse it. Ten, I'm wide open. And ten, I'm willing to change. And write down specifically the one area that you're going to trust God in this week to have him reverse in your heart. If you'll do that, you'll begin to see the portraits in your mind, the Rembrandts in your mind that you've seen were so perfect. You knew how everything should act. You're telling everybody what to do. All the things that people have told you sort of annoying and you said, no, it's not annoying. I'm just right. God's going to repaint those paintings. And it's going to be hard at first because you're going to say, oh, my masterpiece. Then you're going to say, you know what? There are some nice things about my masterpiece. But you're going to find the new masterpiece is so much more beautiful as God incorporates the pain and the difficulty of your life to paint a portrait of his beauty, of his holiness. And you're going to find he is who he says he was. And the life he invites you into is far better than the life you would have created or crafted on your own. Father, thank you for your work. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you work with old dog hearts. And you draw us to yourself through your grace, through your work, through your kindness to lead us and grow us. Do that today, Father. Put your Holy Spirit's finger on a specific area of our life that you want to grow us. That we would be in that nursing home one day we would be in hospice one day, and our hearts would be as in love with you as ever on that moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thanks for being here today. We're going to continue our series next week. If you came prepared to give, there's some offering boxes on the way out. If you're new to Horizon, we'd love to greet you. Third dorm near left is the hearth room. Thanks again.